Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders, CEOs, and investors to help you scale a business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guest is a very special one. Her name is Maria Kolakurshu, the CEO of Sindhu. Maria, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. And uh, you are very active on, on LinkedIn, talking about a topic that I that I love, which is all about uh, pay equity, workplace equity. And I, I like the way you have it in the Sindhu LinkedIn page, kind of workplace equity equal to pay equity plus opportunity uh, equity. But the ones who are listening to us are not aware uh, about what is the context that I'm talking about, but let's start from the beginning. So who is Maria? A little bit of, of your story and uh, how did you end up joining Cindy very early on and, and becoming the, the CEO of, of Cindy? Yeah, sure, of course. So like many people, and I think in particular women and people of color, my career story is absolutely the opposite of linear. It's, it's very, it's varied <laughs> to, to put it in. And there's lots of ups and downs and twists and turns. And that was, that was how I came to Cindio. So I have been in tech a long time in SaaS in particular right. startups, big companies like Microsoft. I co-founded a company called Smartsheet, which went public in 2018. Mm -hmm. And after that, through a series of twists and turns in my personal and professional life, I went to Starbucks. Uh, headquarters and worked in communications. And that was a really important moment for me because it was the first moment as a technologist who grew up in B2B SaaS selling to the enterprise. It was the first time I actually found myself outside of Microsoft working in an enterprise. And that was really important to me because when you grow up in B2B SaaS, there's sort of that um, unique unicorn in the room who is maybe one of 20 people who's actually worked at the type of company you're selling to. And I always found that that knowledge so useful and wondered why more of us in business to business SaaS didn't have that experience of working in an enterprise. So I went to Starbucks, I worked in communications and that's where I learned about pay equity and pay inequity. It, we were one of the first companies to proactively announce our sense on the dollar as it relates to equal work for equal pay. And in the process of doing that, I got to know the head of global employment law and we started scheming a way to create a startup that addressed this issue because it was such a clunky process that just seemed archaic to me and the way data was passed back and forth you didn't get results for months and months by the time you got those results they were pretty much out of date and you didn't really learn anything about the underlying root cause and so in the process of thinking about creating a technology to address this we found zev eigen who is the original co-founder of Cindio, and we joined forces and that was about four and a half years ago today because the company started in, uh, by the way, you are based in Seattle, uh, Washington, just for the ones who are listening to. Um, and uh, the company started in 2016 and you joined the company in 2018, right? And, That's right. And uh, September of 2021, you raised the 50 million uh, C round. So it's a post Series C uh, SaaS scale up uh let's call it in in that way so and how has been the the journey so far since that time that you you joined the as ceo it's been really interesting as you can imagine i mean in particular 
with the macro Ups environment. And the, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> shifting like it has. I mean, so we raised our Series C in September of 2021. So in retrospect, we look like geniuses um, because we are now on the path to profitability and we have great momentum and we're not in a situation where we need to raise oh, more money. So very, very lucky. We also have 275 customers, most of whom are in the Fortune 2000. So, for example, we represent about 35% of Fortune's most admired list, and they're just great stalwart companies. And so the other, I think, benefit that we see is that workplace equity is really ubiquitous amongst companies. It's not just tech or just healthcare or hospitality or retail. We really serve companies all across the spectrum of industry. And although many people ask me the question today, including my dad, um, what are you going to do now that this is a nice to have and not a must have? Whereas, you know, in the days of 2020, 2021, it was much more prevalent and front and center in terms of something employees were demanding. And that has quieted a bit with the things changing, with the labor market shifting. And it's, it's just not the case. I think because leaders, particularly CFOs, CEOs, CHROs, are realizing and getting proof points that addressing workplace equity, committing to ongoing workplace equity has a direct link to shareholder value. It really creates and presents a clear ROI, not only in how employees then perceive your company and how they stick around, how they work better and are more productive, but also just in how the company is able to manage the ups and downs of a volatile market. It, it truly does make you a more durable company. So we're seeing that kind of in spades and, and really are trying to continue pushing that message out there because it's a really important one. Exactly. And, and something very impressive is that you were able to help a company to get to uh, to go public uh, in your uh, previous uh, company that you co-founded, right? Um, as, as a co-founder and VP of marketing, if I'm not uh, wrong in, in information. And now you are going with your second uh, path to to a potential uh, going public or whatever it is, right? Or, or just keep growing. Um, do you see any kind of um, similarities in terms of the scale-up process of your first company and of, of this second company in, in SaaS? Yeah, I think because I was part of the original team at Smartsheet, you know, there were three of us and then we went out and found our fourth co-founder and then we hired the CEO who's still there to this day. We all came out of enterprise B2B. We were at Onyx Software, a mid-market CRM company together. And ironically, what we did not want to be was another enterprise B2B company. We had all sort of shook that off. And so when we started Smartsheet, we started it as a prosumer play. So it was really sort of looking at individuals teams and then slowly growing and scaling to the enterprise penetration because you had so many teams organically using it. It was very much the Salesforce model. And I think we came out of that time in, in technology where, you know, as a mid-sized CRM company that was very much reliant on a heavy consulting arm to sort of customize the software for each particular company, Salesforce came along and, and, you know, took down Siebel, took down so many of the big players with this different model. So I think going into Smartsheet, we were really thinking about it as that sort of 
back then called ASP, now called SaaS, but thinking about that prosumer model where you grow and grow and grow organically, and then you, you head into the enterprise. So with Cindio, um, you know, the pendulum swings and it swings back. And so I think my thinking when I joined as CEO was let's hit the enterprise first, because when you're able to create that credibility and trust with brand names such as Salesforce, who's a customer, General Mills is a customer, Volvo is a customer. When we've got the credibility and trust of those types of brand names, it's so much easier than at some certain point to customize your product and move down market versus doing it in the opposite direction. So I think that was probably the biggest thing I learned is that, you know, Smartsheet was quite a long slog to move from prosumer to enterprise. And so, um, kind of just rethinking that model and where to start. And any difference in, in the case that in um, at Smartsheet you were a co-founder and playing another role and now leading the the, the ship and, and being more a professional CEO according to what, what I understood, right? Um... Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we, we joined so early. It's almost like, you almost know, the early... Right. Of us. Yeah, it feels like we're all sort of have been in it together for a long time. Yeah. But I think the most important thing there is just the relationship that you have with the original co-founder. And that was right. certainly important at Smartsheet as well. When hiring in a professional CEO, that relationship between the two was so important. And, and I agree with that. I think the co-founder CEO relationship is critical and you've got to have that mutual respect. You've got to have the understanding of who plays which roles and when, and as you scale, those roles change significantly. And so depending on personalities, that can be something that's difficult to deal with. It's that article about giving away your Legos. You know, you have to be ready, not just the original founder, but also as a scaling CEO, you have to be ready to hand off things that maybe in the beginning you were you were very hands-on, roll up your sleeves. And particularly for me, I think that, you know, that's marketing and communications. That's always been kind of my space to play. And so having that role at Smartsheet where I was leading that entire function and then moving into a CEO role where you've got to be delegating those types of things, specifically as you scale, I think it's really important early on to figure out what, what types of jobs or, or tasks or functions or strategic elements really give me energy and where do I want to put that energy? We kind of use the cliche term a lot, like what's what's your highest and best use? And identifying those things early, I think, is really important to having a smooth scale up because, you know, it's tough. It's tough when you're used to doing everything to have to sort of get a more specific role. But as the company grows, grows that specific role becomes incredibly important. Absolutely. It makes it makes a lot of sense. And when you you got in, did you already raise the pre-seed or the seed rounds? And uh... Uh, let me think about that. So yes, Zev had raised a small seed. I think it was about five million. And then when I came in in two thousand eighteen, um, pretty quickly we had to raise a Series A. So that was my first foray, foray with fundraising as the CEO. So obviously we had raised money in Smartsheet, but I had always been kind of um in in the side seat in the co-pilot seat sense. sort of doing my presentation from a marketing perspective but never leading a ceo and it's it's quite a a different experience um we raised our series a right as right as COVID hit so it was the monday the dow took its biggest drop ever we had verbal term sheets on the table that were suddenly on pause wow. 
So it was, it was a stressful time and it wasn't easy. And I think with the froth of 2020 and 2021, you sort of forget that there was that moment that lasted, you know, two to three to four months where folks just didn't really know what was going to happen next. And luckily I found Emerson Collective, um, who is an incredible partner and investor who co-led our Series A with Voyager Capital, who's a Seattle-based VC. And then along the way, a big, a big objective for me that really aligns to our mission and value as a company is figuring out how to diversify our cap table. Because I think if you're a company who's out there looking at compensation policies, making sure things are not only fair, but also equitable, right. you've got to take a closer look at your cap table and make sure that you're addressing that in, in your cap table as well. And so I think through the Series B and the Series C, I had the rare opportunity to really shake things up and add some new investors that, that have brought just a phenomenal set of ideas and, and introductions and network and, and all sorts of things to the table. Sounds, sounds amazing. So you were able to get then to, to lead the Series A, the Series B and, and the Series C process and now kind of going to profitability and being able to break even and not being dependent on raising uh, more capital to get to the an hundred million range, let's say the kind of the dream of every of any VC back at SaaS company, right? Yeah, and it's all about controlling your destiny. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of benefits to going out to the capital markets at some point if if you have the right reasons and you have a growth plan that makes sense and a trajectory that makes sense, whether it's you want to be acquisitive or there's something else that's happening in your scale with geo markets and things like that. So those are all in play. But I think the important thing and the thing I tell my team is we want to be able to control our destiny. So if the markets remain sort of um, in the same position they are today, that's not ideal in terms of a opportunity to garner a value on our company and everything we've achieved. So let's make sure that the timing is something that we control. And, and that's a message that I think resonates really well right now for, for founders and CEOs. Right. So typically here on the show, I, I like to kind of talk about three ingredients that are critical to scale. Uh, according kind of the framework that I've developed. It's the first one, it's all about radical focus. I think that everyone agrees, uh, especially the ones in the in the CEO ship like you, uh, that focus is is in theory, in theory it's it's clear, but in, in practice it's very difficult to to do and saying no to a lot of noise. Uh, then the world-class team and culture, having the right people on the right seats for each stage of growth and, and having a, an execution machine in place that allows us to have a predictable revenue machine that's again it's it's repetitive it's it's profitable it's scalable right all all that jargon that that we we learn in 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 SaaS is there any other ingredient that you see that is being critical for you to scale send you that would be also helpful to to other founders that are in their process of scaling up their companies I think you hit on most of them and I'm glad you included culture. I feel like that's one that's often missing from the list. It's sort of efficient, predictable growth. It's um, building a high performance team, specifically that focuses on the leadership team. And I think it's really important that you include culture. And I, I would say the one other thing that we're really focused on this year and is just really embedded into our DNA is hyper focus on building customer devotion. And we use the word devotion really intentionally because 
there's kind of this concept of loyalty, but loyalty is such a passive word and it almost reminds you of, you know, I have a Labradoodle and his name's Ollie and he's very loyal, but devoted, <laughs> devoted just has such a deeper um, meaning to me in terms of we want our customers to really feel the value that they get from us is so massive that they're devoted to the brand, they're devoted to the partnership. And so that's something that we focus on every single day and how we work with our customers. Sounds great. So let, let's go to pay equity and all this new category that, that you have created. Uh, so what should companies be more aware and what they can do uh, and how can Cindu help them out to, um, to ensure that they have a workplace, that they, they provide workplace equity to, to their people, right? Yeah, I think the first step is really basic. It's about flexible compensation policies as a competitive advantage because so many companies don't even understand why they pay what they pay. They're not clear on pay explainability. So as these pay transparency laws pass, which require companies to post a good face salary range for any new role, employees are coming forward saying, I saw this new role was posted. It's similar to my role. Why am I bottom of the range in this range I saw posted? And if you don't have comp policies that you can explain or you even understand or that you're not consistent with it's going to be really difficult to teach your people managers how to have those difficult conversations and it's simply going to erode trust when you can't have a conversation which seems very basic i mean you're trading your time as an employee for compensation and and so if the company can't explain what that trade-off looks like or what they value in terms of what you bring in your contributions that's going to be a really really difficult place to be for companies so i think the first step is thinking about sort of pay explainability why do you pay what you pay and we identify that with our software so we help companies get really clear on what are their policies and behaviors that are driving what they value so that they can say we value you and here's how you know that the second step is thinking about can you ensure there are not disparities because of something like gender race or ethnicity so you layer on this sense of workplace equity in terms of let's make sure we're reducing legal risk of some sort of pay equity incident class action or whatnot but also more importantly making sure we're continuing to build on that trust in that it's not just that we know what what we pay you and why now we're also able to analyze that there are not disparities that are because of systemic bias that are, are built in due to your gender race or ethnicity and that's something a lot of companies weren't able to say you know four years ago and then i would say the third piece is really about opportunity so it's looking at am i providing opportunities equitably across my company that's everything from merit increases to promotions to are my performance ratings biased? So how am I doling out performance versus potential ratings? And am I looking at those to make sure that they're they're equitable? So I think all together, that's this concept and category of workplace equity that really starts with just the basic premise of are your comp policies fair, consistent, and equitable? And it moves all the way through detailed analysis around pay equity, running linear regressions, everything that folks used to do using outsourced law firms, and then moving to movement. So are people moving up in a way that's equitable? Right. So and in, in terms of, of course, the, the business model, we are talking about uh, SaaS, uh, software as a service, with uh, the typical 
SaaS pricing. In terms of go-to-market, is it mainly enterprise uh, go-to-market at this time, or are you now going uh, down markets and also offer, offering it to, to the mid-market uh, or, or maybe in the future? Uh... Yeah, I would say right now of our 275 customers, most of them are sort of enterprise size customers, but we do have, I don't know, 15, 20% of our customer base that's in that 1,000 person company range, which Got we it. consider mid size. Yeah. So there is, there is a huge need, especially for growing companies that are 1,000 plus and they want to start really looking at this. We yeah. certainly will be thinking about mid market more seriously, but back to your first point of maniacal focus, we really yeah. want to get yeah. this right. <laughs> create that customer devotion for the customer set that we're serving today. Because again, we've garnered so much credibility and trust from the enterprise that um, we we just feel really privileged to continue to do our work there. And, and you're right, it's a SaaS pricing model. So most of our customers are on sort of a 24 month, two year uh, license agreement. We do offer one year or three, but most of them kind of hang out in the two year license. Okay. And, um, and in terms of, you also have, you were talking about your previous company that you needed, uh, and it, it is common in CRM, you need a, a very important consulting arm. And there is nothing against it in, in SaaS and uh, if we are able to control the amount of revenue that is coming from consulting and at, the, at a certain time also start involving partners to be able to delegate that part of the business that is not core, uh, that should be the software, the technology, the IP. Um, you also need to provide consulting to be able to help enterprise customers. And especially this this happens a lot with, with enterprise customers, right? So they want the, the solution implemented. They, they don't want to, to need to figure out by themselves uh, how to implement it. So do you feel that the you need a consulting arm with, with your product to be able to provide all the, the benefits that you just explained before to your enterprise customers? I don't think you need it. We have customers that don't take advantage of it, but we certainly have it. And many of our customers love that aspect that we've got these expert backed services via domain experts that have training and understanding of what it means to be a labor economist or an applied statistician. These are roles that are really important, not so much to customize the software. The software is very, very flexible and we built it that way. So it can ingest any type of information that a company has in their HRIS. So if they want to compare, um, you know, whatever they want to compare, they can do that utilizing the software. It's built on GCP. It's very flexible um, or it's housed in GCP rather. But I think where our, where our domain experts come in is they're the ones that can help with best practices and with thinking about how should you be approaching this? What does it mean to have a pay policy that's based on tenure? How is that showing up? Is that really what you want to achieve with this policy? Are you achieving it based on these visual representations of, you know, we have deep pay policy analytics in our software offering. So I think the domain experts are really helpful almost as that extension uh, of the core comp team at our customers. And again, that's a big reason why we've developed such devotion is because we've got this extension of the team on our team. And it's less about customizing the actual software and more about just guiding them, giving them sort of not legal advice, right. but best practice advice and, and 
tips on sort of how to be more consistent and equitable with their policies. And when you talk about your domain experts, are they are they in house or it's it's kind of a, a pool of of experts that you have developed to partner with um, with Hindu? We have some in house, and then we do have a few partnerships. We're very very um, selective about those partnerships because obviously, anytime you're opening the door to your customers, you want to make sure the caliber of service they're getting is very high quality. So we have you know one or two very selective partnerships as well. Got it. Something that I also noticed on on your uh, LinkedIn is that you also are. The co-founder and board member at Fair Play, a Fair Play uh, workplace. So it seems there is a, a certification uh, available also for companies that want to be certified in, a, in, in having or showing or uh, allowing or providing fair, fair pay equity, a fair pay equity uh, workplace. Yeah, that's right. So that was actually it was something that our customers wanted. So. There are right and wrong ways to do a pay equity analysis. So you you know there's a bunch of stuff that goes on behind the scenes at times because if you think about the relationship between a company and its law firm, the law firm is trying to protect the company and reduce risk and to sort of squint at the data and and make it make sense, clean it up, present the best possible picture. But there are ways that you can gerrymander the data, you can make exclusions without disclosing them. There's all sorts of things you can do to disaggregate. So get your groups to be so small that you're not really comparing anything because nobody compares to anyone. They're all special snowflakes that have to be excluded. And so our customers came to us and said, you know, every equal payday, it's so frustrating because all these other companies are announcing this like 100% pay parity and we know they're not doing it the right way. We know they're not going hmm. and doing the work against the right methodology, standards, and tools. So we we decided to stand up a certification program that would vet and analyze that companies were doing it the right way. And it requires things like you can go look online and it has all the methodology, but it requires things like if you do make exclusions, you've got to disclose them. You've got to commit to disclosing your unadjusted median gap. You've got to um just follow some of these standards and and rules in order to be certified that you're doing this well yeah it's kind of also being able to help employees to identify what are the the greatest places to work and if if this entity uh, also has good let's say uh, habits or good standards in terms of providing a fair pay equity workplace so in a certain way, it's also a kind of a celebration of, of the standards that the organization is implementing, right? So being recognized by the best practices that, that they apply. So I kind of see on, on both directions, does it make sense? Or that was the purpose why, why you started uh, this entity? Yeah, I mean, it really is just all about accountability. It's about right. accountability and it's about our customers feeling like they can leverage this work as a competitive advantage when they're hiring, when they're retaining their employees, when they're talking about their brand. It really is a huge part of an employer brand initiative. And so we wanted to keep it really pure uh, for the customers that that wanted to make sure they could certify and have that extra gold gold standard. Right. So we have discussed, Maria, that after 300 plus episodes, it's difficult to talk about uh, new topics and, and to support the audience about the best practices. 
of scaling up, um, but we you, you suggested that we cover uh, two topics that you that you enjoy a lot. Uh, the first one is is the importance of having an independent board director, a non-investor in in later stages. And that was kind of our effort together to to bring value to to the audience and to help people out there that are scaling up their companies to be in a in a good shape and and to learn also from from your experience uh, scaling uh, your your two companies. So why do you think is is so important to have an independent board director and why founders and and CEOs should consider it? Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think ideally you find someone that can represent the voice of your customer. So we were incredibly lucky and privileged to bring on Orlando Ashford during the Series C. And Orlando is currently the CHRO at Fanatics. Prior to that, he was the CHRO at Mercer. And then he stepped into a role as the president of Holland America. So when he enters the boardroom, he just has the gravitas of deeply understanding our customer and deeply understanding our space from not an investment perspective or a sort of operator perspective that's generic, not that there's anything wrong with that, but when you think about adding the muscle to your board of someone who really understands what you're trying to do, understands the business transformation you're trying to create, it, it, create, it, it brings a completely different dynamic that's super productive to the conversations. and. I talk to CEOs all the time, and I think this is, this is very ubiquitous across the conversations I have with various C-suite leaders. They're all trying to figure out, how do I make my board meetings more productive? I wanna get things out of my board. I don't wanna just stand up and give sort of the, the rote 80 page update. Yet, for some reason, we all end up back in this mode where we're doing this status update. None of us want to be doing it. The board doesn't want us to be doing it. They can right. read a preview just fine. They want to have those rich discussions where they're adding value. And I think when you add someone to the mix that's independent and also knows a great deal from experience about your customer, it just naturally unlocks those organic conversations that you want to be having with. And it makes a lot of sense because sometimes some of your investors are not experts in, in your field, in your category, and what they can add, for instance, is they have invested in other SaaS companies and they can provide some of the best practices that they saw in other contexts and, and help you out. But uh, but then uh, understanding really uh, what are the issues and what are the, the pains of the customer and what are the trends. And so it, it brings more value to, to the table, right? I, I think it does just in the fact that it's another mechanism to bring people from diverse backgrounds into your board. Right. And it's really important. I have an incredible board. I mean, my I'm, I'm the luckiest CEO I know with the level of support, encouragement, expertise my board brings to bear. And they're always super willing to jump in and help, but you have to ask and you have to also bring, I think the quid pro quo of transparency with CEOs amongst their boards is not widely understood or adopted. And for right. me, it's been, very successful. I go to my board and I'm very transparent, whether that's about good news or bad news or whatever's happening. And I really sort of value this idea that they are on my team. They want us to succeed as much as we want to succeed. And at the end of the day, yes, they're evaluating whether my performance as CEO right. is up to snuff or not. But that doesn't mean I should 
be sort of hiding the ball in order to protect my own role. It's really about how do we band together to make Cindy of successful. And I think when you come authentically with that point of view, it creates board relationships that are really positive because everyone understands deeply that you're all kind of in it together, fighting toward the same goal. Yeah. And sometimes I, f I feel that uh, the difficult part of, of being in the seat of, of the CEO is really understanding what is the priority number one? What is the root cause of some of the issues that we are uh, facing and uh, how do we prioritize the, the way we are, we are solving uh, the root cause? But a lot of times is understanding the, the why and, and the what, right? So then when we realize, okay, this is the problem that we need to solve, and this will unlock the next stage of growth of the company. Uh, and of course, a lot of times we also have a lot of hypotheses that will allow us to go from one to five or five to 10 or 10 to 20 or 20 to 50 uh, millionaire RR, but we need to uh, go back, test some of the hypotheses and assumptions uh, and get back with, uh, with, with the results and uh, decide if we want to keep pursuing the, the same avenue for growth or do we want to iterate again and test a, a new way. And, and this, as it happens with product market fit, um, we never know when it will click and when it will really work and we will unlock the, the next stage of growth. What do you feel about it? I think that's right. I think... <laughs> I think one Feel of free the to most... say, Mike, it doesn't make sense at all. <laughs> yeah, no, I think one of the most difficult things yeah. once you have customers is, you know, everybody wants to get to the point where they have, you know, 275 customers and, and yeah. particularly some of the brands that we're servicing. But I do think it becomes more difficult to carve out resources purely for innovation. So, you know, we're thinking all the time about data science and our aggregated anonymized data lake and how do we apply AI and how do we infuse, you know, right. generative AI into how we're thinking about HR, because obviously these natural language models are going to be the way that people ask questions and they won't query a database anymore. They will simply just ask a question and expect an answer. And when you've got a bunch of customers that you're also trying to deepen de devotion amongst it's it's very difficult as a ceo to have the discipline to carve out those resources that are just exploratory and and for innovation purposes mm -hmm. and that's something that we we struggle with i think in this seat over and over and over again but you've got to do it you've got to have the discipline to make sure you're thinking about what's five years ahead in addition to what's right. six months and that's a really tough place to be in a market like the one we're in. It's a lot easier when you're in 2020 or 2021 and you can go, you know, everyone can raise money like that. And it's not, not a big deal. And you're not held accountable to unit economics and capital efficiency. It's much more about, you know, growth and innovation and a really good story. So in some ways, you know, the companies that are succeeding now, and I certainly believe this about our team, mm -hmm. they they understand capital efficiency. They've always been somewhat capital efficient. They understand the puts and takes of growth and innovation at all costs, and they haven't been operating like that even when it was acceptable to operate like that. So I think the folks that are kind of rising to the top and, and staying relevant are the ones that have always had this idea of it's earned, not given. And if we are going to go allocate some portion 
of our capital to innovation and ideation, we've got to earn that right by making sure we've got devotion and high retention and expansion and NRR from our existing customers. And so I think that earn not given mindset is really important as you continue to lead through this time. Love the points that you just made. I, I think that it's it's really tough, as you said, to be able to combine uh, short, mid and long term. And I would say not only very few CEOs, very few leadership teams are able to do that uh, well. And, and also what you were saying, kind of how do we have a mindset of exploiting and optimizing and also a mindset of, uh, you know, bringing new hypotheses, testing new models, and kind of more the exploring mindset. And typically when you are scaling up, you are a great scaler, but maybe you forgot some of the skills of, of a builder, right? And it, and we all know that it's super difficult to have a builder and a scaler uh, in, the, in the same personality. And, and that's why uh, I always love the, the importance of the team and having a, a diversity in the team that will bring different flavors uh, as we scale up the business. Yeah, I agree with that. And uh, and the other point that that you are also uh, very passionate about, which is the the duty of the CEO of emp empowering the CRO or the chief people officer um, to become the chief human financial officer. Uh, what is this all about, uh, Maria? Yeah, it's a concept we've been talking about a lot lately, and it's this concept of you've got your chief human resources officer. And they've been considered in the past sort of the leader of the subjective and the fluffy and the qualitative. And when you look around the table in the boardroom, which has undergone a massive peopleification, if you think about the types of skills that are now really sought after for board directors, one of them is, have you been a chief people officer? And that's because if you think about the line item they're managing, it is the biggest line item on the PL. You spend nowhere more than you spend on your people. And yet the CHRO continues to come to the table and the only metrics or dashboard they bring with them consistently is the employee engagement survey and the pulse on the qualitative as to how people are feeling. And so it's it's our thinking that we've got to start treating this as a CHFO, so a chief human financial officer, because you are the gatekeeper, you are the the safeguard for the most important asset, truly an asset and the largest spend in the company. So how do we give them tools and metrics and dashboards that are similar to their peers around the table? You don't see a chief marketing officer anymore that comes to the table just with feelings. And, you know, they've got brand studies, they've got pipeline, they've got you know, tools like Visible and Marketo and, mm -hmm. and Influence Pipeline, they've got metrics like crazy. It's really become a deeply analytical function and moved away from some of the creative thinking that really drove the function over the past decade. And I think that CHROs need to lean into really becoming more financially oriented about how this asset is performing. How is it driving business performance? How is their work around culture, around representation, movement, promotion, how are they using those flexible comp policies as a competitive advantage? So that's kind of something we've been talking about a lot. And I think it's resonating deeply with CHROs because they know 
they are one of the more important functions in the company and yet they're still seen sort of as a an offshoot i mean i don't know how many board meetings i've sat in where the people update is slammed into the last five minutes of the, <laughs> the board presentation if it's there at all you know sometimes they make a cameo or it's slammed into the last five minutes or it's in the appendix so how do you stop doing that and change your mindset to think about this is financially our biggest opportunity to drive business performance sits within our people I love I love the way you you present it and express it. And do you see that also in terms of HR tech, uh, there is a a huge job to be done to provide better tools for CHROs, uh, as we did. As you were talking with the with the CMOs that now are much more closer to the CRO position, and at the time it was almost salespeople that were moving to the CRO role. Uh, and now we are seeing a lot of marketing people also owning uh, revenue, right? Yeah, and I think that's that's a big part of what we're trying to do is to provide data in real time at the moment when discretion is infused to make decisions about people. So there's always going to be discretion. That's part of the role of a manager. But how do you make sure in the moment when you're making decision about someone's promotion or even a high visibility project or someone's comp or a merit increase or a spot bonus? How do you make sure you've got data in the moment right. to help guide you as you make those decisions? Makes a lot of sense. Let's go to the last segment uh, of the show, Maria, where we kind of do your ping pong of quick questions and, uh, and answers. So if you'd have the opportunity to have a coffee with yourself in 2018, um, what advice would you offer to your younger self when you were joining uh, Sindhu as CEO? It's such a great, it's such a great question. <laughs> I think, you know, I there's some meme that's going around right now and i can't remember who it is in it but they're basically saying like this too shall pass and don't sweat the small stuff and everything typically is small um i think it would be something in that vein like just you've got to get through sort of the next moment and be present in the next moment and it, you're going to get through it and so as long as you sort of keep that attitude and that optimism i think I would probably tell her she needs to infuse a bit more levity when things seem like they're not going to get better or in that, you know, dark COVID time. We've got to laugh about it. We've got to infuse a bit more levity and humor. Amazing. What are you the most proud of on your journey so far? Definitely the team that I that we have built and are building. I think we've taken some chances on folks that didn't necessarily have like the perfect skills match for a particular role. And just to see them thrive is is really something I'm proud of. Worst advice ever received? Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so many. <laughs> so much bad advice. Probably something, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but that it's, you know, fear is a great motivator for people. I was given yeah. that advice once, and, and I don't know that it's great advice. Right. I, I don't think that fear, um, it might give you like a spot moment of productivity, but it's not a great motivator for people. Great point. Another resource is your favorite book. It can be business or non-business, you decide. 
I would never be able to pick my favorite book. I love books. <laughs> Every summer. Um, One of me yours. And the, yeah, we have a, a summer book club. We do just do it at home. And so we have a grid and everyone gets to pick certain books that they put on the grid. Because now I have seven kids. And so the older five. Oh, and congratulations. My husband and I, we all pick books. So you get a certain number of 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 spots like on the bingo card. And I think the one from last year that really stuck with me was it was called Americana and it was by Chama Chamamanda, I think is how you say her name, Ngozi Adiche. And it was so interesting to kind of be brought into this world written by an authentic Nigerian perspective and just this concept of race and how it's so different in the United States versus in other countries. And I've certainly seen that, you know, traveling through Europe and, and it was a really, I think the reason I enjoyed the book so much is the discussions that it, that it created with, with the kids, because everyone read that one, I think it was in the center spot. So like to progress, you had to read it. Mm -hmm. um, and everyone really enjoyed it and came away with different perspectives. And it just had a lot of interesting conversations attached to it about this concept of race and how it's, it's, different depending on where you come from huh. and then i think the classic for me is man's search for meaning um yep. which is just you know you read it over and over again and my copy is annotated and like dog-eared and just this idea that you've got to have something that you're working toward you've got to have purpose you've got to have you know something that's driving you that's bigger than money or success great additions to to the list Super inspiring. And your favorite movie or series, Maria? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I don't need anything I can watch. I, I'm big into like the family movie nights. So I think whatever, <laughs> whatever I can convince kids of all ages to watch together. I think Marvel does a great job of that because it's sort of all ages. But right. I just, I love all of us together. Like, doing something like watching a movie. So anything that I can actually convince everyone to watch would probably be a favorite. Love it. And finally, your favorite podcast, excluding uh, this one, of course, to make it easy for you. Oh, I can't see your... <laughs> Um, I love the Sixth Street podcast. I think that they do a really mm -hmm. nice job of bringing people from diverse backgrounds. Um, I'm an avid listener of the All In, just because I think those guys right. bring really current perspective that's very global which is nice um there's some other ones i listen to kind of on the daily Th those are two really good ones i think right and the first one what was the name again maria uh six street six okay. street yeah. i need to check it out what is what what is that one about um, it's just a venture capital firm, um, okay. and they just have a variety of guests on there, which I right. think is, you know, I'm always looking for, for folks that have people from different backgrounds, and I found their guests to be really interesting. Awesome. And then, obviously, we have a podcast um, on workplace equity that I co-host with Sean Mendy from Concrete Rose. So, Sounds um, great. That is also one. That is great. And, and for the ones who are watching on, on YouTube, you have the, the shirt of Concrete Rose uh, Capital. Oh, always. <laughs> I'm their biggest fan. So <laughs> always promoting them. Amazing. Uh, Maria, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for, for making the time. And uh, congrats for being uh, an amazing CEO and uh, a great communicator.
So I've been following you and, and listening to your um, interventions, namely on, on Forbes and, and so on. And, uh, and yeah, I, I love the passion that you put on, on kind of creating a movement with, with Sindhu. Thank you so much for having me. And to our community, thanks for being there. We keep bringing you the best of the best to make your life a little bit easier as you scale up your company. See you soon and keep scaling.